The virtual CISO moment is brought to you by VCISO Services, a leading provider of quality and experienced virtual chief information security officers for small and mid-sized businesses. Check them out at vcisoservices.com. Hi, I'm Greg Schaefer, and welcome to the Virtual CISO Moment. Susan Richards joins us. He is, she is the Director of uh, Information Security and has an extensive information security background. I know we've worked together on several initiatives. Susan, how are you doing? Thank you for joining us. Great, Greg. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So I know some of your past uh, and the path on how you got to where you're at. Um, because I know we've, um, I, I believe we've served on like, say, for example, the ISSA board before that was like many years ago. But can you kind of go through a little bit of how you got started in, in IT and cyber and where you're at now? Yeah, absolutely. I started way back in the 80s um, as an application developer, computer programmer, worked my way up through, you know, team lead, system analyst. I was a database administrator for SQL Server for a while. Scrum Master, Project Manager, and you know, back when when I started computer programming, it was before Al Gore invented the internet, so <laughs> we didn't have to worry. And the modems aren't going to jump in and start hacking themselves, so we didn't really have to worry too much about anything other than insider threats, right? And bulletproofing our code. And so um, then that brought you to where? Um, well, then I started at a small company, well, a medium, probably medium-sized company as um, we, we had a web application that took credit card information. So my official getting into information security came from training the, our development team on OWASP top 10 defensive coding techniques. And it really kind of caught fire for me to understand all of the different threats that can be out there and to try to take people like me who didn't believe it could happen and you know move us forward into thinking about those types of things and really evangelizing how information security can be so important. And you are also an adjunct professor. And I know this because uh, you were so kind to invite me once many years ago. It was, it was BC before COVID. It was actually right before COVID, if I remember correctly, um, to talk a little bit about risk management. So um, you did that for about a year or two? Yeah, about two years. Um, one year at uh, Lipscomb University, I uh, taught risk management, and then the following semester taught um, IT management, just IT management and planning in general, and then also for Nashville State Community College, but that was really more for just an introduction to computer applications, so it was not necessarily IT-related people that were coming into it, but I still managed to put a focus in on making sure people were thinking of multi-factor authentication and being safe with, with any of their applications. I also taught at Nashville State Community College a project management course last summer. Oh, okay. Okay. I did not know that. I um, My master's is in information systems project management. And the only reason why I did that at middle, instead of doing information security, um, information systems of security, um, was because I already had my CISSP at the time. It looked, sounded like it was going to be redundant. So what I always like to find out is I, this is sort of like my stock question at this point in time, because I get so many different responses, some of them the same, some of them like really thought out in different areas. But what would you think is like one of the most significant threats today to small and mid-sized businesses? Well, I think it's the threats, you know, there's always the standard, you know, business email compromise and multi-factor authentication, but thinking through it from my perspective as a, you know, coming up through computer applications and database administration, I really think it's understanding where your data is, 
the value that that data has and understanding who has access to it and who wants to have access to it. Because if you know where it is and where it's flowing to, you can be a, a better agent of being able to protect it versus not knowing that you even have a server, you know, that that's off somewhere doing something with that's of value to you. Okay. Well, that's a, uh... And and you, uh, you you do an awful lot in the information security community here. I mentioned in the beginning that we we've been on ISSA, um, and and I wanted to touch briefly on this because one of the things that you I know that you're involved with is planning the um, the the conference here in in Nashville. And for those who who don't know, shame on you. Um, <laughs> you will know, <laughs> but you will know. Um, InfoSec Nashville is one of the uh, largest and and most well-respected uh, one-day information security conferences in the Southeast. And routinely more than uh, 500 folks are there. Um, excellent uh, vendor sessions, excellent speakers. Um, so how, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about InfoSec Nashville? Uh, what, what, what do we, what can we expect this year? When is it? Sure. Well, let's start with this year, and then I can work back into how I even got involved in this this crazy mess of, of <laughs> wonderful people. Uh, but yeah, the, September 9th, so Friday, September 9th, just coming up in a couple weeks. It's um, at the Music City Center. It's all day from eight in the morning to six at night. Start. We have two keynotes. I'm so happy to have um, Chris Cochran from Hacker Valley Studio and Anne-Marie Zettelmoyer from, let me make sure I got it right, Cognito. I was going to I was going to use enough. For, <laughs> I, I know she used to be, at, I think, MasterCard, and she's just recently moved to Cognito. So I don't want to misspeak on, on where she is today. But right. two really dynamic uh, keynote speakers. So I've been involved at the board level with Middle Tennessee ISSA for about 10, 10 or 11 years now. Um, this year was not in the day-to-day running of the board, but just in working with uh, a bunch of CISOs here in the Middle Tennessee area and helping drive some of the content of the conference to be meaningful to CISOs in the healthcare space and and everything we do here in Middle Tennessee. So we were able to select, you know, we had a a good list of keynote speakers and I was able to find out from the CISOs, you know, who would resonate with them. And I was really happy that we got these two really great dynamic speakers. But yeah, in addition to the keynote, we, we, or the two keynotes, we have breakout sessions all day, with different tracks so that you can, you know, you can customize the conference to fit you. We also have time for people to socialize. I know InfoSec, we don't typically socialize too much, but this is a good way at lunch. Um, there's no sessions going on at lunchtime, so you can sit and, and chat with people. There's breaks during the day. There's a cocktail hour at, in the evening. And the exhibit floor itself is, I know the sponsors really like the exhibit floor because it's right there and it has traffic all day long. And we're very respectful as far as we don't hand out information to of conference attendees to those sponsors. If you want to provide it to the sponsors, you're more than welcome to do so. So you can engage at whatever level you want to. But, you know, for me, just going to a conference and sitting and listening to the content isn't nearly as engaging as being able to talk to people afterwards or during, you know, they're getting their reactions during a keynote and things like that. So it's really good to be in person. Yeah. And actually, not only is InfoSec Nashville one of my favorite conferences, but it was my first event back last year from, from being out from COVID. And it was the weirdest sensation. It's like, I, I, I wanted to stay away from people. I'm backing up when they're coming up to me. And, you know, some people can be close talkers, although I think that that's kind of settled down a little bit now. Um, but it was, it was a, it was both a weird, um, experience, but also a very, 
humbling and very uh, personally satisfying experience to finally see like a lot of folks like all gathered together in person, colleagues, friends, people that I've known for years. Um, do we have any COVID restriction protocol items this year that we need to think about? Uh, that I don't know because I'm not on the day-to-day -day running of the board. I know um, our event management company does a lot of other events in the Nashville area. So anything that would need to be in place will be in place. Um, but, you know, I mean, we, we're IT people. So there's some days that you feel like hugging people and there's other days you feel like just going hi from a distance. And and I think now it's perfectly okay. You know, our introverts were, were actually going to be set up very well for a pandemic because we already are germophobic, wash our hands all the time and, and keep our distance. So, you know, I, I think we're, we're good on that, but I, I think it's more socially acceptable now to just go, you know, no hug today, you know, I'll just say hi to you. So, and it's, it's a really engaging, involved, concerned community. So, you know, it's very respectful about that. I know uh, people when, when, when the gatherings first started again, people getting back together after the initial lockdown, slow, slow down, whatever you wanted to call it. We all had like sort of different ways to greet. There was the elbow. There was the fist bump. For me, I went Star Trek. <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly. You're like, hi. Yep. But, but I loved it too, because I, I have to admit, and this is the first time I'm admitting it publicly, I, I'm, I'm a little bit of a germaphobe. And so like the whole shaking hands thing, I'm kind of like, no, I'd rather do, I'll do the fist bump or, or the, the Spock. So yeah. um, well, looking forward to that, and one of the other things that I'm excited to hear more about from you, and we talked about this just briefly before we started, um, was about High Trust and the High Trust Users Group here in Nashville and some other exciting things that are going around uh, on around that. Yes, I started with High Trust back probably about four or five years ago now. Didn't know really what High Trust was, and I actually had asked a couple of friends within the ISSA community. You know, am I limiting myself by going for a job that's that's you know ninety percent High Trust? And I have to say, no, I'm not limiting my myself at all, which has been great. But High Trust is a control framework. Uh, it's built on IS, ISO twenty seven thousand one, but it's built originally was built for healthcare companies to be able to say we're HIPAA compliant because there's no HIPAA certification. Um, and SOC 2s can be a little bit garbled when it comes to, you know, are unclear as far as, you know, you have to basically read the whole SOC report. You're and being very a kind by saying that, by the way, <laughs> a little garbled. I, I think I'll use that. So, well, it's always been amazing to me that an unqualified report is actually a success because to me, that sounds like you're not qualified to run that or to, to produce that report. So I'm always like, what is it with accounting? You know, why do, they, why do they do that? The first time I saw that, it, I, I, you know, you just triggered some neurons from several yeah. years ago because I'm like, oh, this is horrible. No, it's good. What are you talking right. what about? What do you mean? It's unqualified. <laughs> how, how can you know, a qualified report is horrible. So it's, yeah, it's that whole, you know, gap accounting. And I'm like, generally accepted accounting principles. And you, you guys get away with that, you know? So, and High Trust basically was trying to take all of the different COVID, ISO, PCI, all of the different regulatory frameworks and pull them in. And it's a really great way to customize, you know, for your particular business, what controls, security controls do you need to have in place? So you can use it as a risk assessment framework, or you can use it as a compliance framework. And, you know, I find I have, you know, just my little team and, you know, we do high trust almost all day long, but it's hard to really understand, you know, going to a conference like InfoSec, is anybody else using high trust? Do they have other questions? Um, high trust conference has been online the last couple of years. So it's even hard to, to see because an online conference, you don't necessarily engage as well. And so, 
you know, me, my content management background, knowledge management background, I really was like, you know, and, and everything I've seen with ISSA and, and the chapter and the active chapter membership that we have, I was like, you know, we've got to be able to do something like this for high trust. So I went to the high trust Alliance and I asked them about, you know, could I put together a user group, you know, not sanctioned from high trust, not you guys, you know, peeking in, but just for us to be able to lay bare the good and the bad about our experience with high trust. And they're all on board with it. Um, we had our first meeting, our founding meeting, July um, this year at the Brentwood Library. So mm-hmm. start small and, and move forward. Our next meeting is going to be in conjunction with the High Trust Conference coming up in October. High Trust is again having it online, but I'm looking to get a, a organization here, Vaco, or um, you know one of the other organizations here to be able to um, have a key, the keynotes at least broadcast, so we could be in a room together and watch the keynotes and then kind of talk about them afterwards. That's an interesting approach. So it's a it's an online virtual conference, but you want to foster a sense of community by bringing the the new high trust users group here and watching that all together. I, I like that. Yeah. And, and it's been nice because High Trust Alliance has said, you know what, people don't even have to be signed up for the conference if they want to come watch the keynote. They're like, we're that open to evangelizing this and kind of getting it off the ground for you. So, yeah. So I'll, I'll have more details of that. I'll, I'll put together a Slack channel and, and get that going in more in in more formal ways than just, you know, a couple emails out to people that I know are interested. But more to come on that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that. Can so so anybody can can join? Like, say, someone who's not a member of the High Trust Users Group can come and view that with y'all. Correct. Yeah, I mean, at this point, we don't really have any kind of membership or application for membership for our users group. It's really just if you're interested in High Trust, um, if you're interested and you don't want to necessarily spend the money on the on the High Trust conference because you know it's a it's a two day and it's kind of a big ask uh, to do that, but you just want to come meet some like minded people. Um, you know, I'll I'll have the details of that keynote as soon as High Trust has the schedule out, and I'll get that out to um, to you. I'm also thinking, you know, you're inspiring me to maybe do some podcasts to do some quick hits on, you know, some of the frustrations or some of the reporting in High Trust, some of the new features that come out because um, they they offer training, but you know, three years between in-person training is a long time to go and high trust is always adding new features. And so I've got one of my, one of my people that's in training this week, he's been working with high trust for about four and a half, five years now. And he's still pinging me with, Hey, did you know we had this? Did you know we could do that? So it's really, it, it, it came from that idea to just do that in a more informal, easy access way. Well, I think that's exciting about you know, reaching out there and particularly about um, the, the the podcast. First of all, if you have any questions about it, let me know. And second of all, that's a nice little segue for me to, to do a little plug saying, hey, have you tried Anchor from Spotify yet to do your podcast? Because we talk about that in all of the audio ones and at the beginning of the, the video ones as well, too. Anchor actually really is um, a... Uh, a decent platform. So that's what that's what we use for here for this podcast. So, well, that's good. I'm glad that uh, someone like me can come um, and uh, and and not have to like have a secret handshake or pay like you know 150 200 dollars at the door or anything like that. So, um, so what about like uh, future plans? We kind of talked about this a little bit more. I know that uh, you're very interested at least I think I have this correctly, that you're very interested in election integrity? I am. Um, my husband has run for local office a couple of different times. And I started out first as a poll worker 
um, mm -hmm. and then have started getting um, involved with the Tennessee um, Election Integrity Committee and really working as a poll watcher. Um, so for the longest time, Republican candidates were not allowed to have poll watchers. It was some some legal battle that had happened in Delaware that poll watchers were not allowed to come and, and finally they've they've lifted that so um, you've probably seen an explosion of poll watchers in your local polling place if you're in here in the middle Tennessee area and it's because of that and so it's it's really understanding you know what to look for and um, you know and it's funny because you know most of the poll workers understand why we're there as poll watchers um, and I've worked on both sides of it and really for me I want to be able to to look somebody look at every single voter and say your vote counted and you know I can be there to attest to that it's not just taking the word of somebody that you don't know um, you know we're here in the community doing that um, it's I really think that InfoSec people have the right mindset for that. You know, we audit, we review, we look for those vulnerabilities, and we can improve that process. So even if it's just something as simple as, you know, having the, the registrar when they take your information ask you what your street address is, as opposed to providing you your street address, or that person who's taking your, your application and, and bringing you over to a ballot machine to say, you know, similar to going to a doctor's office, hey, state your name and, and date of birth, just to make sure we have the right person. And we're not, you're not voting on behalf of somebody else, mistakenly, because that, that did happen actually in, in the one of the, one of the most recent elections, there was at least an one incident where somebody wasn't paying attention, they picked the wrong person, that person who was who got that application wasn't paying attention, signed their name to it. And so they voted on as another voter, it was not in, you know, it was not malicious. It was an unintentional insider threat, <laughs> but <laughs> it's something that we as InfoSec people would be alerted to and can say, hey, if you did that, if you had that machine operator taking that application and saying, you know, give me your name and date of birth, they would have been able to stop that right there, gone and corrected it and, and brought it back. Because I, I know being a poll worker, everybody has the best of intentions, and sometimes it's just the process gets in the way, and so you circumvent it, or sometimes the process just isn't trained to, to everyone. And so they don't know what the process is. Well, I know there's been such um, more and more focus on election integrity. And for me, I, I first became, I think, more acutely aware back in the 2015, 2016 uh, timeline. And one of the things that I noticed that I try to do now is that the process is different than what I remember a while back. And, and I guess it really depends upon what equipment, what that folks use, but you go to the, you go to the screen you put in your choices and then it prints out a ballot and then you take the ballot to another machine, which then scans it in. And I right. guess from that point in time, you have then a record both of the electronic voting from the scan, because I don't think anything is actually uh, captured in the screen itself. And you also have a paper backup for those manual counts that we've heard about. But I'll tell you one thing I've never, I never did up until like, I don't know, I guess it would be six, seven years ago is actually look at the paper after I put in my stuff and make sure that I actually, it actually said the right folks on there. Because I think after the 2020 election, there were some instances where people are like saying, no, I voted for A and B is on here. So I think that's another thing too, that, 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 that it would be good as InfoSec folks to kind of like use our knowledge and our ability to bring awareness. It's like, make sure, you know, think before you click, um, think before you scan. I don't know. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And there is actually the, that ballot marking machine actually does capture an image of it. 
And mm-hmm. so, and that's part of the audit process is to make sure that, you know, it's at some point what's captured in that image on that machine matches what is in that paper and what is scanned. And so it's great now that we do have that paper and it's been some of that, you know, because four or five years ago, there was that uncertainty of, well, put it in the machine, hope it recorded it correctly and right. it's gone now. And now there's a piece of paper and yes it, it is a matter of training your your own family you know and your your own voters in your household and community to say make sure you read that paper ballot because if there is an audit if there is a recount you know sometimes they'll just recount from what the scanner says but that you've always still got that paper to go back to and be able to look at it and say yes this was my ballot so if somebody wants to get more involved and, and more generally, since um, I, I have like two or three listeners outside of Middle Tennessee, something like that, <laughs> um, um, what, if someone wants to, to become more involved in the process of maybe being a poll watcher, how, how do they do that? Um, well, there's, like I said, there's poll workers. So that would be through your own local election commission okay, to, yeah. to sign up as a poll worker. Um, poll watchers, I know it's for, for us here in Tennessee, it's the Tennessee Election Integrity um, Committee or commission. And, um, you know, every state would have some sort of, of poll watcher organization. Uh, True the Vote is a big organization that does that can get connect you with um, any of the organizations that, that would locally be in, in your area. And then, you know, if you really want to take the big leap, you know, be on the election commission for your local election, because those are appointed by, you know, state and, and local legislators to say, you know, here's, here's the group of five that are going to be overseeing what the election commission does. But, you know, at any level you're ready to engage, um, you know, and, and also, you know, to be part of witnessing the audits, you know, the, when they certify the election, you know, what that process is and having that transparency to say, okay, from, from the, you know, the polls close, they count them and there are always the unofficial results. Well, what's that process of making it official and, you know, just be part of that, process to say, hey, you know, there's a there's a new improved way we could do this, or here's here's something we could do. Here's here's how we could track if something goes wrong and, and things like that. Because right now it's, you know, it's a handful of people that are going and doing that. And, you know, I think our industry lends itself well to having yeah. that thought process to say, oh, I've seen, I, I'm a scrum master. So, you know, I want a retrospective at the end. And I've talked <laughs> with, with Chad Gray, our local election administrator to say, hey, can we do a retrospective? You know, I, I don't want to, I, I won't tell anybody, you know, I'll sign any non-disclosure agreement you want me to. I just want your team to focus on what could happen better. And it's not necessarily because I think anything happened bad, but as a scrum master, I know everything can be improved the process. So, you know, let's apply those same IT principles that we do here to, you know, I mean, elections are now an IT process with all of the Mm -hmm. electronics that are in there. I know that um, it seems like more so than any time in my life that there is a, a, a lower confidence in the electoral process and sometimes I think that people are looking outside to get that confidence back where really the more that you can get involved and see it for yourself, the more you can realize, okay, what is working here is working. So. Correct. Yeah. Cause I mean, I only knew, I only knew election day because that's the only time I'd ever worked as election day. And now I've watched for early voting. So I know more of that process, but yeah, I want to be able to stand up and say, no, our, our elections have the integrity that they need. You know, I've, I've proven that out. I've proven that to myself and I can evangelize that to others, but I so, don't know what I don't know. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
So uh, a lot going on and uh, with everything in InfoSec and then the volunteering that you've done through the ISSA with the conference and high trust and through the um, helping with election integrity, what do you do to decompress? Well, I have a comfort beagle. So she follows me around. She, you probably heard her earlier. She decided to, to get up and, and shake and <laughs> r- r- rattle her collar a little bit. Um, but, you know, my family and church keeps me, keeps me focused. I sing in our choir at church. Um, I crochet, which is a one, one needle form of knitting. Um, and so I, I do that to kind of relax. I read a lot. Um, mostly fiction, because if I get too much into nonfiction, um, I can I can tend to get a little over overzealous about whatever it is. <laughs> like checklist manifesto, I just started reading that, and you know I'm, I'm telling people I'm writing a checklist for this, I'm writing a checklist for that. You need a checklist for this, and so I can tend to get a little bit overdone unless I'm reading fiction. But um, yeah, so I have two cats, a dog, family keeps me busy, church keeps me sane, and uh, exercise when I can. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Susan, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. I, I, I love catching up. Looking forward to seeing you over at InfoSec and really appreciate your time with us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. And everybody stay secure.